we'll see if this angle's any better. Um, I'm just going to be close enough that... Anyway, it's hard to record this thing and not stare at my own face and actually stare at the camera and not be distracted by my own face. Welcome to the podcast. Um, this is me putting slightly more effort into the project, so I'm going to be doing introductions. I'll eventually have a song that I'm slowly piecing together. It's difficult to figure out what music to put at the start of a podcast. Um, seems like everybody else has very trendy yet exactly the same kind of um, songs at the beginning. Um, I've got a bunch of like random sounds that I've been capturing of late to see if I can come up with something. Anyway, uh, there'll be there'll be more to this material. There will be uh, um, raising in quality <laughs> and uh, hopefully reducing in pauses. On the podcast this week, um, I was lucky enough to interview Patrick Jones of Artist as Family. Um, I, was, uh, I spent a little bit of time with them. Um, we did a Sacred Men's Circle on the Sunday, and then on the Monday morning, Patrick was generous enough to give me an hour of his time, as well as, you know, they provided me breakfast, and Meg, his partner, took me through some fermenting basics and gave me some uh, kefir grains um, which I still have going I've produced a lot <laughs> a lot of kefir in the last couple of weeks um, so yeah I'm, I'm, I'm immensely grateful for the time that I was able to spend there and for this interview that you're about to get into um, I don't know is that should I? I should probably provide a little bit more of a intro to. I mean, he gives you know he lets you in, he invites you into his world, doing the uh, doing the interview. Um, but I met uh, Megan Patrick on my uh, permaculture design course back in twenty twenty. Um. We did a tour of their of their place, and they also attended a few of the other events that that the um, the group was at. Um, just very inviting, generous, lovely people, and the space that they have set up their their house is delightful. They've they've got a lot of things really well set out. Um, What else? You can you can probably tell that I I didn't plan this. Um, I wanna I wanna slowly develop quickly, but pr probably slowly develop uh, the ability to just do these off the cuff to just know what I'm talking about. Um, and in order to get there, I think I'm gonna have to look shit for a while. And, that's fine. You can probably tell I don't mind looking shit by my haircut. Um, 
and stopping saying um. Horrendous. Clearly not trained. I reckon it's better if I just leave it there. Thank you so much for giving me your attention, spending time with me and with Patrick today. Um, fuck. I have more interviews coming up. I've got one in the bag, and then I've got another one that I'll be doing in January sometime. Hoping to maybe get a couple more in before then. And as we progress, there'll be more material here for you all at a higher quality, less arms, better cameras, better positioning than uh, my phone tucked into the handle of a thing leaning against my laptop. Uh, and, yeah, thank you. Enjoy the conversation with Patrick Jones. Let's do some mild, mild editing later. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. Um, record? Yeah, please. Thank you. Yeah, the magic. Um... I'm joined today, Patrick Jones. Really appreciate it. Um, we're in the love shack right now. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Um, I came through Dalesford maybe two months ago, and I was over at the petrol station filling up. Um, and I look up, and there's just someone hooting down the road on their bicycle leafy greens <laughs> out the back timber on the front i'm like that's fucking patrick <laughs> and just you're like fucking buzzing down um yeah it was it was amazing um what's your what's your typical morning hmm. uh firstly g'day ryan thanks for inviting me on and um I just might mention we're in Jara people's country. Yeah, southern southern Jara people's country. Um, a typical morning uh, is usually a plunge with Meg, my partner, in uh, in our tank. Um, we've got an old tank that was gifted to us that we uh, took the top off, and yeah, so we start with a five-minute plunge in cold water, icy water when it's winter, and that um, everything seems to be easier that comes after that for the rest of the day. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a very enlivening way to wake up. And we usually do that on, on dawn and then um, go back inside, uh, <clears throat> not run back inside, like re-acclimatize, then head back. We've, we've already got the fire going and the kettle on and then we sit stand around the fire just warming up slowly drinking tea and checking in with one another and then uh, we'll generally go and check on the flood which is the small flock of sheep and the small herd of goats that we often run together at the moment they're in separate places okay. 
Yeah. That's on their own common land? Uh, both common and private land, so a lot of neighbours, um, yeah, with a request of, do you want our sheep to do your lawn mowing? And they go, yeah, that's fine, that would be great. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we're farmless farmers, and so we've uh, got, um, the Fleur is head of uh, about 15 animals, and um, yeah, either doing fire mitigation work in the forest or I guess grass fire mitigation, um, biological mowing um, in, you know, unused paddocks. So, so we're on the edge of suburbia um, between the town and the forest. And, um, and that forest goes on, in, runs into the wombat forest, which the town is almost surrounded by. So it's um, rated as a very high bushfire region. Mm. And so we've been using goats much like families and people did um, up until about when the gas came through. And uh, there was always a house cow and there was goats and sheep just keeping the, uh, the, the weedy, woody weeds at bay. Yeah. And, um, and also you know, providing important local milk and meat to families without converting weeds basically into meat and milk. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. That's great. I didn't know that you had a cold plant. That's amazing. Um okay, so with with those fifteen sheep, um are you are you shearing them? No. They uh, so there's a half of about eight sheep and they're daubers, so they're self-shedding. Right. And um, they're very hardy like goats. Um, both of them really, <clears throat> their soft spot is their hooves, so making, keeping their hooves clipped. Um, and just, yeah, just keeping an eye out for infection, or particularly with this wet season uh, foot rot. Um, but other than that, they're just incredibly hardy animals and yeah. they browse <clears throat> the Dorpers um, are across between Dorset in England, where my ancestors, some of my ancestors come from, and Pur is the Persian. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so it's this incredibly hardy, resilient sheep. It's um, like perfect for Australian climate. Yeah, really good for Australian climate. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the non-shearing aspect is great, and they're they're a meat sheep, yeah. So okay. um, they put on incredible density of growth. Much, same size sheep <coughs> as as a goat. Um, you might have double the amount of meat. Wow. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Even Excellent. and our goats are meat goats as well. Yeah. So how often? Mm. Well, how long have you had the flu? Um. I guess we started with goats about four or five years ago. Okay. Yeah, we were doing bushfire mitigation work uh, with neighbours uh, using boards that we we learned this technique through David Holmgren with his work down in Spring Creek, which is a really great community managed forest. And so, about eight years ago, we started um, working with volunteers and neighbours uh, and just going into forest just near here um, at, with boards and ladders and just sort of laying 
there's this two to four meter high bramble blackberries down onto the ground okay. and then just maintaining by stomping and then we'd have the bush school kids come through and we'd do what we call um blackberry surfing and we'd, we'd get them a, a little board each from the tip some sort of you know this thing they could lift and then going down these sort of steep gullies um trying to stay stay on the boards <laughs> as they flip and crush and yeah bring that particularly the dry canes of the blackberries the, the, the blackberry leaf itself is by mitigating but um what's all the dead dry canes after yeah, seasons sure. that's what's actually and then once those they're broken up and crushed by the by the heavy weight of humans and now goats um and the goats getting to to the leaf for eating all the leaf and putting all the canes on the ground yeah. the canes are full of lignin and they break down really quickly and create this beautiful humus right. and then once the sun can hit the forest floor um, we've done a survey of 32 indigenous species coming back oh wow um, in that area where the goats are so we just make sure the goats aren't in that forested area in uh, the spring and summer when the seed sets happening yeah and so we've really tipped the balance of like one dominating weed species yeah. to multiple species Wow, okay. um, so yeah that's that's been in a very short period of time yeah that's amazing so those species that are coming up are they like woody species so they're going to essentially shade out where those blackberries were um yeah so one of the dominant um species is the fireweed okay. which is a local indigenous um uh, seneca i think is, is the latin and they have um they're sort of a meter tall um uh become uh, a herb herbaceous plant really they grow to about a meter then set um their flower and then seed um and so yeah they uh they become very dominant so rather than just seeing blackberry because the blackberry will push back up to half a meter right. to a meter over the summer and then at the end of summer and at the end of the seed set the goats go back in and munch over the winter and um yeah so there's but there's really rare things like um um various lilies and mernion which are the yam daisies right um, you're getting those just naturally yeah because the seed bank is there right. from higher up um in in more sort of uh, less weedy places of the forest and those seeds are blowing down right. or in the soil itself and they just can get sunlight and uh more, yeah there's less dominance of the blackberry so Amazing. all these things that you know like even poetosix and lamandra um grasses like that uh yeah just yeah we've got a little video on our um, on our website i think it's called 32 yeah 32 indigenous species recharged after goats after goat grazing and things like that and the goats are great because they signal out the invasive or the newcomer species they they that's what they want they might nibble a blackwood or they might nibble a cherry balat indigenous cherry um, but they're not that interested they, they 
in love because right. they love the wheat, the, the blackberries and all the, um, you know, sour thistles and things like that. Right. Milk thistles. Wow, okay. And you mentioned their gorse. Mm. When I was driving in, um, I came down from Mansfield mm-hmm. and kind of you can just slowly see the gorse increasing. It's kind of there's a couple of little shrubs around the side and then you see like whole paddocks mm. just filled with it. And, um, yeah, I, I remember what, watching a documentary of this guy in Zealand? in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's a wonderful documentary. And he's kind of, he's like, you know, you don't need to cut these out or poison mm. them or whatever. You can just seed beneath them and they will kind of provide uh, safety for yeah. seedlings to come up, which will eventually shade them out. Yeah. And I kind of, I had the thought that the gauze is is essentially telling the farmer, like, this spot now has to become forest. Mm-hmm. This, you know, you, you can try and have this as grassland, but you're yeah. you're fighting a losing battle. Yeah. yeah. But you, you could use goats to kind of reduce that and let the sun in to get yeah. more species to come up. Exactly. And it's not total annihilation. It's, it's not like good species, bad species, yeah. correct, incorrect. It's not that classic sort of binary that happens in just about every aspect of our culture. It's actually saying, well, the goats eat, eat the flowers and some of the new growth of the gorse. Right, okay. And so they're just reducing the seed bank, um, yeah. but it's not a total annihilation. And the same with blackberries. When blackberries just become ground cover, they have all this, uh, well, this, as I said, the soil building, their um, bank retaining from erosion because they're often on steep slopes. Yeah. Um, they're and like blue wrens, which are a very um, important animal to me. Um, their preferred habitat in this area is blackberry brambles. Right, okay. So a lot of small birds use blackberries or hawthorns to, uh, and also ringtail possums do, to build their drays or their nests um, to yeah, as protection. So it's this sort of good, bad um, uh, binary is is, is really, um, it's not very nuanced and it's not really seeing what country is is doing with these newcomer species and how these newcomer species are in placing um, in country. And so, yeah, it's a much more dynamic and more than human consciousness and complexity that's going on that sort of demands our attention and that botanist Hugh White I think his name is um, that, that, yeah that film is based on um, Happen Films I think is the, the people that make yeah, that yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're friends of ours and, yeah, um, yeah so that story is so wonderful because it is a botanist seeing what the land like not imposing but actually observing understanding and then seeing those gorse plants operating as nurse nurse plants i think that's the term he uses Um, and then the the indigenous seed stock is there they're not actually planting in anything it's all coming it's all in the soil so these are seeds laying dormant waiting for some nursery plants or some upper canopy and then once they're there, they're starting to seed and then they push up through and shade out the gorse. Yeah. So the gorse is seen, uh, understood as a pioneer species. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. Much like the blackberry and much like the fireweed. Yeah. Uh, the indigenous fireweed is is a is a pioneer species. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder too, uh, I came down from Queensland. Um, my old man has a property up there now. And um, uh, his property as well as much of the roadside up and down there is covered in lantana. Um, and I wonder if Lantana does a similar thing because we've noticed, or Dad noticed that the, um, there are quails on his property. They love living under the Lantana. Mm. And then um, uh, it was interesting, like we were kind of pulling some out to make a few tracks around the place. And I just had the thought that um, if we, or unless we replace the function that the lantern is providing here, mm. it's going to continue to, to come back. So there's no point pulling it out and being like, this is now lantern free. It's, mm. like it, it's, it's here. Like the lantern lives here. Um, but talking to my dad about it, like we can just, we can kind of prune them back so that they're not just reaching out and covering everything. Mm. Keep them as small bushes. They're still going to provide that habitat for, for the birds and everything. And also, the flowers that the lantana produces, if you you get a really good insect repellent. Mm. And the property's covered in midges. So it's mm. kind of almost this, mm. this trade-off gift mm. that the lantana's giving. Mm. It's like, mm. you know, I live here as well, but here's a flower. I've noticed there's some bugs in the area, you know? Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a really, it, it's a different approach, I think. It's a different way of looking at the land and instead of judging it, like, that's a bad plan, I want to get rid of it. It's more yeah. appreciating its gifts and that it lives here. And if we're not going to eradicate something, what relationship do we have to it? And what relationship do we have to the land? Yeah. A field naturalist friend of mine um, recently told me about a, a small track in somewhere in maybe north central Victoria or central Victoria, where gorse has actually been um, uh, sectioned off as to be preserved because it, it is the habitat of a very rare and endangered bird, oh, wow. uh, indigenous bird. And so, you know, I think this sort of, um, as conservation movement becomes more um, developed and mature and more complex in its thinking, um, you know, like the destruction of willows along the creek still continue here. And so the floods, where the floods have been, the destruction and the erosion is like really significant. And, but there's still a lot of biodiversity officers that will get any money they can and throw it into an excavator to go and clear the incorrect species. And of course, then just create another trauma in the land, like gold mining was a trauma, like sheep farming was a trauma. And, um, particularly over, over grazing of sheep. Um, and that's the other thing, you know, people say, you, you're an environmentalist, why have you got sheep? It's like, well, we've got such small numbers and, we, and we're constantly rotating them. And so they don't, you know, create compaction. They actually, um, they're, they're improving the grass diversity, they're, they're fertilizing it. So yeah, so it, <clears throat> grazing animals, when, when animals are allowed to graze um, and move through the land and not just be locked into cells yeah. um, 
and overstock. Um, it's a completely different um, scenario. But yeah, that I think, um, you know, when I, on the other hand, when I talk about, you know, the complexity of, or the maturing of the conservation movement, you know, that, that's quite a, that's quite a sort of sentence I might have been confident in terms of projecting into the future a few years back, but, you know, we, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that is sort of such middle-class hubris, just yeah. even that idea that we're, um, and maybe conservation will mature and become complex, um, but will conservation even be a thing in the next 10 years mm. as people are scrambling just to survive? And that we, we're facing a lot of, a lot of big challenges. A lot of troubles, yeah, definitely. And it's, yeah, it's such a resource intensive um, thing that we do with conservation, you know, it's, uh, it's so much driving around and it's so much use of poison and so much use of fuel powered devices and all this sort of thing yeah it's it's a it's an industrial industry yeah 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 um that's yeah. what i was getting at that's the, the shorthand of <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was talking with a friend like i've got quite a few friends that are in conservation and um you know i mentioned utilizing goats for weeds or for woody weed uh reduction mm -hmm. and this sort of a thing yeah. and he was like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just not, it's not, it's not viable on our end. You know, you've got, you've got four people looking after entire sections of forest. He's like, we don't have the resources necessary to do a lot of this work. We have to work with poisons. We have to work with these things because we have to tick boxes. You know, we need to make it look like we're, uh, we're, making that effort you know mm. um i was like that's that's an interesting angle like you don't actually hear that from them that like mm. they don't have the resources to be able to do the right thing mm. it's kind of you know he was talking about like the people that live there need to give more of a shit about the place and need to be more invested and they need to visit the creek beds and they need to do some of the mm. some of the weeding or just some of the 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 pruning you know let let more sun in um try and reduce some of the um the toxins flowing in from the road and you know all this sort of stuff you know yeah. but it's it's up to the lo the, the locals of a place you can't have four interventionists coming into the entire cardinia shire ranges yeah. being able to manage it yeah. like four people cannot manage a forest yeah. without yeah. the industrial input yeah. And this is neoliberalism, the, the economies of, of neoliberalism um, demands that there's only four people, four experts that um, with, the, uh, with the privileges of massive amounts of fossil fuel input. And, um, and this is the hubris of neoliberal thinking and education, because in this all you could apply what your friend said about you know the frustration um across every field yeah, that yeah. comes out yeah. particularly out of universities because they're in the business of crafting jobs and um industries that are 
are in that mindset. And so, and generation after generation, there is the uh, not uh, the removal of uh, the onus on local people, like the CFA, for example, is going through this at the moment. It's always been community-led, yeah. and um, and the Andrew government has put in um, sort of top-down leaders and uh, paid positions, and this has created a real tension within the CFA because its whole principle is based on volunteerism. And right. I, I, I was involved in a CFA project that... Um, as a volunteer, there was about 15 of us, and it was part of community fire mitigation right. groups around Victoria. And millions and millions and millions of dollars were um, were spent on setting up these groups. And each group had a, um, a very high-paid bureaucrat, probably, I think, about 130000 a year. And the bureaucrat was to... Do the you know the paperwork, write notes, um, keep the group together, you know, like a facilitator. Um, and we had a really good facilitator, um, and we worked as a group for nearly, I think it was about two and a half years. And we did this great plan, and there was old timers in there that just wanted to burn the shit out of the forest, and there was spray, 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 and then there was. An, a few of us who were saying, well, let's try goats, let's try a biological approach as well. And so we, we came up with this um, master plan, if you like. And, um, and you know, this is like meeting once a week or once a fortnight, taking time away from our families and our other community work. And we came up with this very big, beautiful plan and we were called the Dalesford Hepburn um, Community Managed Forest crew or whatever we were called, I can't even think of it now, I think it was Bushfire Mitigation Group. Um, you know, we're, we're told from headquarters in Melbourne that we were the most successful and organised group and la da 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 And so it comes to actually getting the funding and, and the five-year, rolling out the five-year plan and there was some technicality in, in the, um, in the, there was one box not ticked that was nothing to do with our work, but a bureaucrat in um, uh, parks or some one of the other uh, agencies. And, um, and and as a result, we missed out on funding that year. Oh, wow. And it was, you know, it was so extraordinary that to know that there were just millions of dollars and not one single group in Victoria succeeded. And we gave wow. it a really good shot. And, and all I can think of is it's either the bureaucracy gone completely and utterly mad or the whole things were designed to fail so that um, you don't have community sovereignty and you, you, you continue to clip away community sovereignty and just to keep it in the hands of the, of the state. And with COVID, we saw that. We right. saw the disempowering of people and the heavy hand of the state come forward. And this is just leading up to COVID, this, this project. Yeah. So I feel like that first-hand knowledge of here is a functioning group, hearing about all the other groups falling away, fracturing, having arguments. We had lots of arguments, but we worked through it. It was like, it was sort of like, it was fantastic. And some of the old timers from the CFA that laughed at me and another fella uh, for bringing goats into the discussion 
for the very first meeting, we just said, well, we'd also like to, to try our goats. And, and we were just laughed at. And then the goats actually had the, the only um, formal trial we had with the local council was, mm -hmm. was, was doing a, a goat trial and trying to work out how to scale that. And, yeah. and the goats, all, all the time, we were on common land with our herd, which was about 25 to 30 goats at that stage, with three of us working them. And we weren't looking for money. We, we weren't like looking, you know, we were thinking this would be good cottage industry stuff. We could, we we were interested in in um, presenting the idea and showing empirically that this is uh, is a goer. This is a viable option for you know high weed forest prone, uh, fire prone, weedy woody wooded forests. Yeah, right. yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so I think seeing that and seeing the COVID response is really it, it's made me uh, even more focused on preparedness without um, government, yeah. whether whether uh, resisting government tyranny or that government to the regions will just stop, like yeah. um, which is one of David Holmgren's future scenarios as brown tech and green tech kind of have colluded really. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and so there'll be more authoritarianism in the cities, people will be most likely on food stamps there'll be so you know those who want to be in that um kept more by the state will, will will flock to the cities or stay in the cities and those who will have much less services if any um, but will have a greater sense of uh, autonomy and community sufficiency and sovereignty um will and, and it's happening now building building those networks in regional areas right yeah okay because yeah you you would have the 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 receding influence as it gets more and more expensive for uh truck services or or policing or whatever it is to kind of uh, branch out into regional areas that would kind of recede into the centers the the major cities and then the minor cities and the hubs and things um yeah and it kind of it seems like this sort of community resilience can only happen in regional rural areas you've got uh you've got the capacity to at least get to know more people around you um maybe not everyone like i imagine there's probably several thousand people in dalesford um but you could have you know, uh, like Daryl Taylor, he talks about kind of having uh, having neighbourhoods. So kind of your road, you're all connected, you're sharing resources, you know what's going on, you know how you're going to respond. And then kind of you then have like larger neighbor, uh, larger sections which are made up of the neighbourhoods and they're kind of communicating well. Um, but I, yeah, I don't. I don't see that as being viable when you've got 4 million people living in a densely populated area that doesn't grow any of its own food, barely produces, like I, I, I can only imagine how few solar panels or anything, even, even though they're not really an ongoing viable option, but mm. for the short term, you know, at least for a city to produce its energy. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't see that happening. Yeah, I've got some friends in the city who are committed to 
being in the city and they they see that um, there is creative and um, creative space in that as the city um, transforms uh, itself and you know even just um, guerrilla gardening in in um, in uh, abandoned lots and, lots and homes and, yeah, and stuff yeah, like that yeah. and so they're exploring that at the moment yeah. and so as um, you know it, it's expected that the real estate bubble that's just been propped up over, over decades is, is going to finally implode with inflation it may you know they may pull another genie out of the <laughs> bottle but um, you know there's emptying of like there's been an oversupply of housing uh, it's just driving another industry a neoliberal mindset of just build 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 um, even if um, you know there's just so much excess housing Yes, there are in the Galeson Hepburn, there's probably about 4,000 people, but or 4,000 houses, but there's um, half of them are empty. Right. Or they're owned, they're only filled on the weekend with. Yeah. So, this, you know, in this sort of suburban town on the edge of forest and field, um, not too far from Melbourne, there's, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of radical transformation that could happen because it, it's become a tourist town. But there's a lot of old timers and those of us who came, I came nearly 30 years ago, um, mainly because it was very affordable for young artists to, to live and yeah. it was cheap, dirt cheap to rent and um, and there was, I think, one coffee machine in the main street and, you know, and, and a few different cafes and art spaces and there was a radical uh, forest movement, environmental movement and there's the uh, gay and lesbian um, culture that was building and built up into a very strong that communitarian aspect. Um, so there's this whole range of sort of subgroups that came here and have integrated with the old timers, um, which you know anything from Swiss Italian gold seekers who stayed and became farmers here, through to various different Europeans. Um, Sadly, not too many indigenous families, just a just a small handful. Um, and uh, but we do have a connection to indigenous mob up further in Castlemaine and Bendigo region. Um, but yeah, it's 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 become highly gentrified this this area, and it's, um, it, that brings a lot of challenges, particularly for young people, not being able to find. Um, permanent housing, um, not being able to uh, save up and like Meg and I were probably the last generation of low income people who could afford to buy a block of land here and that was yeah. 16 years ago yeah. um, and then it just yeah it's radically became uh, vulgar is the only word for it yeah just the excessiveness what 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 the property market as a major economic form in Australia is vulgar. It's socially um, destructive. Destruct, destruct, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Now I have a few friends that have um, um, in the last kind of few years bought around the Dandenong Ranges. It's kind of similar, you know. The uh, I think. Uh, 
in the year of 2020, house prices went up 60% just in that area. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not viable. You know, it, it, it might, it might be mildly viable if the economy was stable and didn't have all of these horrific wounds all across it. Um, but there, there are, there are so, so many of my generation don't necessarily have the inclination to, to learn the economic reality and to be willing to be like, uh, this is not a sustainable spot and this is way too expensive. And uh, we probably don't have a 30 year, mostly stable economy to get us through. Um, and so, you know, maybe we move to more regional areas and kind of do that thing. But it's interesting that you talked about kind of the artists and the the alternative people kind of turn up to, you know, uh, cheaper areas. And then... And and that, that creates a kind of sexiness. Yeah, they, they, then, they dramatically yeah, improve the area. Yeah, and then yeah, <laughs> slightly wealthier people who think yeah. they're still cool, they yeah. move in and they're like, this is the hip spot, this is yeah. where it's happening. It's like, yeah, baby boomer. Boomers in the 60s and 70s with um, exploring those, you know, intrepid travel tours and yeah. then bring, saying, we just found this amazing culture or this village and, you know, and then 10 years later there's a McDonald's. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the, this is a perennial problem with, um, and, and, you know, it's only, it's only enabled by cheap oil. And, yeah. um, we're at the end of that time um yeah all right i've got some other questions um we'll just see how we okay. um so what you and may do here um and in the local Dalesford area. It's one of the few, uh, at least that I'm aware of, few like committed, courageous setups of being willing to relinquish standard capitalistic mindset and to just drop as many layers and continuing to drop layers of like, no, no, let's just get closer. Let's localize more and more. And I heard a line yesterday um, uh, be famous for five miles mm -hmm. and it's yeah. like that's that's yeah. Megan Patrick for mm -hmm. sure like um, yeah like what what mm -hmm. compelled you both because you were both living in Melbourne um, kind of doing relatively the standard sort of thing mm -hmm. why did you why did you leave that yeah I mean Meg came from Melbourne um, I came, as I said, nearly 30 years ago from Sydney, and but I'd grow, grown up in country New South Wales, in a town, and um, so I knew that I wanted to live outside of a city. Um, when I was 25, I moved here, so I, I wanted to be close to a city, but I didn't want to be in a city, 
Med came later. I didn't even know about permaculture when I moved here. Um, Dave, and, Dave and Sue, who are friends and mentors and elders, um, and Dave being the co-originator of the permaculture concept, um, was li had been living here for a number of years when I got here. And kind of we're in, you know, we go to a film night. Someone would put on a film about what's happening in part of the world. And, um, an activist film or a, um, just a, you know, inspiring story. And um, Dave and Sue, sometimes there, and their son Oliver, and we put on a few things. My partner at the time and I put on a few things out at our place. And so I just sort of slowly got to know um, those guys. And, and then just as Meg and I were getting together, um, I, yeah, I was really... I had a lot of anger for the system that I'd inherited and I was directing that through different art projects and collaborative projects and looking at the whole art world as just another industrial um, uh, set of economies where um, art is, yeah, it, art becomes this commodifiable, even, even someone like Banksy, you know, walls have been taken down by billionaires oh, right. and, and reassembled in their private homes and you know he and so yeah I was doing art project I was I was in a art co collaborating um, with a practice uh, of I guess anti-art anti-capitalist art and then we were starting to get invitations to the museums and art centers and stuff like that so um so we resolved that. Then Meg and I started Artist as Family. And we then we also got in, started doing projects and started getting invited to do things. And and the MCA in Sydney said, you know, we'd like to collect some of your stuff. You know, we want to have it in the collection. It's just like there is nothing. I don't have anything. And that I guess was the whole point that um so Artist as Family became this sort of radical performance art family um, with our eldest boy, Zeph, or um, Meg's the stepmom to Zeph. And he was about eight or seven or eight at the time. And um, But it was like our household's transition away from fossil fuel dependency and how to do that in a community um, setting. And so art became putting on a workshop or bringing people together to see a film um, or um, it, some films we were making uh, on how to to do things like how to raise carrots or it, it, it just became everything and like as we were learning we were sharing and so the practice was sort of almost like a documentation uh, practice of, of how our household was transitioning from you know regular two cars bin liners in the bin, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty standard sort of Western way of living to, you know, this not having a single flush toilet, um, being car free for 13, 14 years, yeah. um, you know, radically transforming our economy from a hundred percent reliance on the neoliberal monetized economy to just 20% yeah. 
And so that 80% means relationships, it means skills, and just over, I guess, 15 years, just that slow step-by-step -step, um, exchange of um, skills and economy to what we call neo-peasant, applied neo-peasantry, which is a reclaiming of our ancestral land bonded ancestors, or a reclaiming of land bonded ancestral ways of being. So on foot, walked for food, walked for medicine, walked for energy as much as possible. And so yeah, we still we still buy things in and we still buy stuff. Um, but that's a small part of the picture mm. these days. And, and so when the pandemic hit, um, our central banks were our, our fully stocked wood pile and our fully stocked cellar. And, um, and so economically, we were really prepared for, we'd been preparing for these things, not as preppers, more as like the neighborhood, what, what um, Daryl Taylor talks about, the neighborhood, we've arrived there too. Yeah. And in COVID, that was the most exciting thing, to see this even more strengthening in the neighborhood sphere. And I think starting a bushfire mitigation informal group with neighbors, and just because neighbors stop and they're on a walk and they see that you're, you know, blackberry surfing down the slope and go, oh, that looks cool, what are you doing? And then you start talking about fire mitigation and talk, oh, I'll help you with it text me next time you're going to do some stuff yeah right. and so just growing those networks and so when COVID happened um we had this really strong neighborhood of around 30 households um on this sort of southwest part of, of the town and um and so sharing of resources checking in with one another and so yeah community sufficiency is something we've been really pushing for a, a long time like you know just the, the idea of self-sufficiency and that prepper um, uh, prepper idea of you know the of the nuclear family is 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 pretty vulnerable, um, but when your economy is spread, is not say in this central bank modality, but it's also not just a replacement like in some sort of formal barter system like let's or something like that. It's actually multiple households who have multiple different resources yeah. that you're in a flow of gifts and a trusted relationship with. And that, that, to, me, that to me seems um, highly adaptable. And so whether it's bushfire, whether it's floods, whether it's um, war, there's a whole lot of scenarios, whether it's the increasing um, heavy-handedness of the state the enclosures of like it seems like the state in the last few years is really targeting people like us who are living a one planet existence um, because the state wants people to live in the fourth industrial revolution so-called eco-fix which is might might reduce eight planets to four planets but it's it's yeah, just sure. a lot of greenwash yeah. and a lot of mining that has to happen but but then there's this sort of you know wood fire wood heating is being targeted um as this polluting thing right. um
Whereas, you know, what's often missed from that is just the huge infrastructure costs and fossil inputs to create an industrial grid or to maintain an industrial grid. It, you know, every log of firewood runs nine appliances in our house. Right. We are a home-based home economy and we use two kilowatt units of power a day. And the average Australian is 18 and the average American is 28. Oh, yeah. So, and yet we're at home making, using the workshop, making food, um, preserving food. So we are using power. And yet that hub, that oven, stove, dryer, hot water system, everything is uh, a toaster, a kettle, all these things are driven by this one unit. And we walk for or ride our bikes to get that fallen wood. Mm. And we selectively harvest and have a relationship with the forest. And then the wood ash gets sifted and the charcoal separated and crushed, activated with our urine, goes back into the forest, goes back into the garden. Yeah. And the potash goes back into the forest and back into the garden. So mm. there is this, when, when you hear this simplistic uh, argument against wood fire, um, as, as renewable, like truly renewable energy, particularly when where we are in a town surrounded by forest and we can walk for our energy and there is no industrial, um, we have a small, uh, sorry, we do have a small uh, one kilowatt solar system and that's back onto the grid. We did that about 12 years ago and and so that's the, that pretty much neutralizes our power, that one kilowatt system. But we won't be replacing that because we're sort of aware of just how much biome destruction occurs with um, with solar panels and wind farms and EV cars. So, I mean, not that we've ever had an EV car, but these these so-called fixes. I mean, for us, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, solar and wind seemed good as a kind of methadone program yeah. to to bring us off oil. And just to have this sort of, but now it's like supposed to replace oil. Yeah. So it's it's like a mining bonanza that has to occur, and the destruction of more destruction of the land around the world, in particularly in Australia, because we've got so many rare earths and essential minerals yeah. for that so-called green tech revolution to take place. So yeah, so like I think this sort of having a one kilowatt solar system has been our methadone program our ability to scale down so is that if we lost power we would be totally cool yeah. um we would be uh but you know we may also lose this this we may be um environmental or you know, refugees or we uh, you know there's so many possible scenarios and that's where hunting and foraging is really important particularly mm. raising our kids with those skills because we may be on the move as well yeah sure yeah yeah right um yeah that's a that's a reality that's kind of that's a harder one to come to terms with it's like you might have to actually walk everywhere and get all your own food and you know avoid dangerous mobs that don't know how to do 
don't know how to build relationships, so they're kind of relying on heavy-handed tactics. Um, a friend of mine who's now a permaculturist used to be an SAS um, soldier, yeah. and he had gone to many parts of the world where there was uh, unrest. And what led him to permaculture was that the, Mar the, the, the guys in the jeeps with the semi-automatic or fully automatic weapons um, were in a, always in a crazed state, um, worried about being shot at. Uh, they're in a kind of rape and pillage mentality, yeah. dangerous men to be around. But the villagers that worked together would have ways to alert everybody that these men were coming into the villages. The women and children were hidden from view and there was a little bit of food left out. Right. But most of the seeds, most of the food was, was hidden from view. And so seeing how effective um, people working together mm -hmm. compared to the crazed dudes who had no anchoring, no grounding, no, yeah, no, love, right. no love, no regular good nourishment, um, and um, and probably all the psychological stuff of like who, what are, what are we fighting for anyway? But just being caught up in the cycles of violence that young men are led to with this promise of salvation or whatever, whatever the promise is from those who are engineering those men to be in those jeeps and so his story i mean this is second hand i haven't experienced this myself but hearing that story um just really galvanized just the importance of small groups working together and regardless of the, what you know you can see mad max like yeah. type scenarios are potentially there yeah. but you can also see how the strengthening of people's um, uh, resilience and care for one another in times of crisis that always the care across households and across the streets always ramp up as well so that's a really um, important thing consideration because I think if people are just focused on the Mad Max thing then they're, they're focusing on they've been missing out on the potential resilience that lies in building deep relationships with not just people but of course with country as well yeah yeah and i think that that's kind of where mm. the um the distinction between say a localizing resilience as opposed to prepping mm. like prepping is like i need to have as many of these resources for myself mm. you know just locked away i need to have my guns mm. um and it's yeah, it's not it's not about the building relationship. It's mm. like that's essentially irrelevant. They're like, no, no, I've just got to look after me and mine, mm. and ride it out until the power comes back mm. on. Exactly, yeah. And you know, some of the preparedness for that sort of it starts with being comfortable having a shit without toilet paper, you know, and doing a, a respectful shit in the forest and you know this is so extreme for most of the culture now yeah um and you know we saw with covid what the toilet paper <laughs> <laughs> the rush on blue paper is like wow that's really <laughs> so, 
There's nothing more beautiful than taking a shit like the mammal that you are in yeah. a forest. Yeah. That's a, and the other thing too is embracing uncertainty. If you think that you can build a bunker and maybe, you know, people are, are intelligent to build a nuclear bunker and you put a whole lot of canned food down there, well, what happens next? Mm. There's a beautiful film called The Babushkas of Chernobyl about these ladies who were uh, elderly, they're elderly now, but they were, everyone was taken out of the contaminated zone in Chernobyl in Ukraine, and, and they were sort of shunted into these other villages. And the, a bunch of women stole back, um, mainly women, so there were some old timers, old, old men as well, but um, they'd since passed on when this documentary was made. And they were living in highly radioactive, their traditional village, their indigenous village. Right. And they were outliving the women and the, the people and the men in the villages in the so-called safe areas. Right. Because they were happy, they were in their country, they were perform they were fishing, they were foraging, they were gardening, they were in yeah. there and they were outliving radically. That's why. And so what that made me realize is just if you are happy and you have meaning, or not happy in the capitalist sense of yeah, the word, yeah, but yeah. if you have if you have purpose and meaning which brings a certain amount of joy and you have connection, um, and you know, I, I would love to know what it, what it would be like to live generationally in my ancestral villages. I mean, that would be, um, but I love this land here and I'm becoming an ancestor of this land, whether that's correct or not. That's just what happens when we're, we're, we become emplaced and man bonded to somewhere. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's, there's an intimacy that, uh, we have with this land as a family and, uh, and many of our neighbors and friends and the community know the land beautifully, um, like know it, know it intimately. And so there's, there is a sense of like, while we may have to be on the move, there also may be a, a pull to come back to the land that knows you mm. as you know it. And those sort of relation, those relationships are um, so beyond the measurement that science can offer. Yeah. And I think that that story of the babushkas um, in Chernobyl is just such a remarkable, I mean, because there's a story that most of us know about the incredible biodiversity with the absence of most people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the, the babushkas are also living this sort of freedom that they probably didn't even have when. Yeah, sure, because they've been yeah. totally left alone. Yeah, like exactly. no one's, no one else is coming in there. Yeah, there's a few services that come in. There's a few people all suited up and but they're really doing it underground. Like they're not supposed to be there, but the authorities turn a blind eye just because this is their space and they want, this is their beloved homeland. And yeah. 
so that film was pretty amazing. And then, as I said, with the SAS friend, um, you know, they, it's just, they, they, these stories just unbox um, my mind. And, and with all the stuff that I, I have, like, you know, moving through country as a tracker and learning those skills and as a forager and yeah, l learning those ancestral skills and reclaiming those ancestral skills, just like with farming and gardening and things. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we might be on the move with us, with, with, our, with our word and, um, you know, and then that could, you know, I've often thought of having to, to move from here and, and just to be moving through country, shepherding and um, just with, just even with a, a small handful of animals. And, um, yeah, that, that, that's now possible because we have those relationships with those animals. And yeah, they may be stolen, and they may be killed, and we may be killed, or further food, or some crazy thing might happen. And we might be isolated because we're moving just as a small family, and so vulnerable in that way, and we've lost connection. But you know, there's I think the embracing of uncertainty, um, and you know, the there's nothing, there's nothing assured. There isn't any way in life. But particularly, I think where we're standing right now, uh, in this collapse of of the empire, and just the destruction that will take place with that collapse, the the greed and the base behaviours that are coming, but there's also beautiful things that are coming. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I keep I keep saying to people that um, you know, as 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 terrible as all of these things are. They're the necessary precondition for us to live a more beautiful life, or as Charles Hardenstein says, the more beautiful way our hearts know is possible. We need these things to collapse. We need, uh, yeah, we need economic trouble, and we need uh, uh, horrifying decisions from our leaders that the rest of us don't don't abide by. We go, no, no, that's that's not okay. Um, so yeah, it's that embracing uh, uncertainty. That's that's definitely an aspect there. Because yeah, security is um, it's not assured anywhere. Mm. It's like um, my friend. She would tell me that like where where three like most of us living in the West, where three bad decisions or mistakes or calamities away from being homeless or destitute mm. and it's like mm. you lose your job mm. you lose your rental mm -hmm. um and you don't have a support network like mm. boom you're you're out mm. you know yeah. um and having that having that community resilience that you know mm. you can shack up with someone close by for a, for a time or maybe someone has work for you or you know the forest so you can at least go and get some food or you know you've kind of you've got those that that local thing there you know you're not reliant on the on the capitalist teeth to to, mm. to feed you and provide mm. yeah. yeah yeah there's um, a book i read when i was probably your age called the wisdom of insecurity by alan watts um, yeah. i was just think when you were talking there i was thinking about 
returning to that book and see what gifts, if any, are still in there. But that really set me on a course of, of un again, unhinging the mind from needing to have certainty. And Stephen, Jen Stephen Jenkinson is also really important in this space, his work, particularly around end-of-life stuff. Because I think, because like often it's, he's, he's a former palliative care um, worker and um, and so just seeing how badly we do death and just, you know, how important it is to do death well. Mm. And so many of us will be facing our death probably well before our biological age. And so even those of us who may be reasonably well prepared or you know have got some skills you know we're all just as vulnerable as the next person and someone who's got absolutely no skills and has invested their entire future in money and property they may somehow survive i mean it's just there's no guarantees and that's what is what makes life so interesting and amazing um at the same time, I, I, I'm glad I'm hedging my bets and you know, <laughs> developing the skills and that may help myself or my family or friends or neighbors or community or any stranger we meet to live a better life, even for five minutes. And, and not, um, yeah, I think that's why this work with the men's work um, that I'm doing with a bunch of local men here is really important for that too. I'm going to have to have a peek. Okay. <laughs> well, I think we're, yeah, we're at the hour mark anyway, so we can okay. probably just, just, do you want to just wrap it up? Wrap it up. Yeah. Um, do okay. you have any... Do you mind if I do a peek for this? <laughs> 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 <I'm busted. laughs> Sorry. No, no, you're okay. When you hit your 50s, you'll, you'll know. <laughs> you go, ah. gotta go. Yeah, you just gotta go. <laughs> Uh, well, I really appreciate your time today, mm -hmm. Patrick. It's been it's been an excellent conversation. Um, where can the people find you? Uh, so yeah, we blog at artistasfamily.is.is, and um, yeah, we we make films there, write blog posts, um, and we just started a little podcast series. But yeah, most of our resources are there. We're also on YouTube. Yeah. Do you do you guys do workshops and stuff here? We take volunteers, yep. and there's information about that on our website. Um, yeah, so we take volunteers for a week, and um, basically people for a week get an immersive experience. It's 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 a it's it's like woofing, but it's not so. It's more relational, and um, so we're interested in people's stories and what what they bring. It's not just we need some weeds pulled even though it might be with weeding, yeah. it'd be fermenting, um, ecological uh, wood harvesting, um, you know, e everything from closing the poop loop, um, growing food, saving seeds, just whatever the season is, but just getting an immersive experience in what an alternative post-neoliberal economy looks like. Um, are certainly a dominant, yeah, I, I, we sort of put it at 80% that we're no longer reliant on the global pool of money, if you like to use that expression. Um, yeah, so 
And also, I think the importance of that is to show people that it's possible. It's not to necessarily live the way that we would do it, because each household would respond differently yeah. to the skill set, to the, to the land, to whatever is present. Um, but just to, to show that um, living this way is can actually happen without running to the hills and creating a bunker becoming a unabomber <laughs> you can do it and still connect to the culture and still um engage with the culture and you yeah. know where we we've gone from darlings of the environmental movement to you know quite loathed in the last few years we've yeah. been called a lot of different labels and um and yeah we're just sort of maturing into that and and just going oh okay well this is that we're hitting the nerves um, across a number of different areas and it's not like we're setting out to be provocative but um, yeah the the end of the empire is going to have a lot of rupture mm. and a lot of um, unhappiness um, but it, it also begs for us to for people to look critically at what's going on and to have conversations that might be unpleasant and or um, prick people's shadows and you know we we all have shadows and they're our blind spots mm -hmm. and so um yeah just as we're getting older we're less concerned about um holding a particular narrative there's lots of problems in the in the environmental movement and people like paul kings north and charles eisenstein have really delved into those spaces and they've been real mentors in that in that space um yeah and just uh, but i think you know on, on the other hand it's the community building and the the, the deep connection work the, the permaculture people care aspect that's, that's really also singing singing to us at the moment so, mm. yeah so it's like that's the nourishing people work but there's also the um, I, I, hesit I hesitate to use the word truth because um, I don't think that the truth is ever really arrived at. Um, so yeah, I can't stand the game of right and wrong. Um, but certainly, yeah, certainly exploring what is happening and even if that um, if you end up, if I end up saying things that make other people feel uncomfortable, then there are good questions there for both myself and for those who are feeling uncomfortable. It's an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful. Excellent. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it.